I'm in an age where I've got my Bible on my iPad, uh, but I yearn for uh, the paper. And especially when I can uh, take a look at this and see uh, where I've been before, but also uh, what is opened up in front of me goes all the way back to the middle uh, of chapter 13, and I can see uh, loops and strands uh, that are hanging together. Uh, in these chapters, Luke, or Jesus, in these chapters of Luke, Jesus is tangling with those who oppose him. Uh, he is loving his opponents by being direct with them, uh, but he's also loving his disciples uh, by being fairly rigorous. And again, we've talked about the way that Jesus is on his way to uh, Jerusalem, and in, in some ways he's discipling his followers. He's discipling the disciples. And uh, he's discipling to the end that they will be prepared uh, for his crucifixion. And they will be prepared after having been crucified and raised from the dead and ascended to the Father uh, to build the church. And, and it's always important, I think, um, whenever you read about the acts and the words of Jesus that you understand that before all else, he is flawlessly loving. Uh, he is loving his opponents. He is loving his disciples. And, uh, and particularly with a view to the disciples, he does not want them to wash out. He wants them to prosper in their discipleship. And the passage that Tim preached last week was, you know, pretty rigorous. Uh, you might even say, uh, uh, well, it, it was demanding. You might even say it was harsh. He says, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, and remember, he's going back to talking about father and mother and son and daughter, uh, the, the people that are closest to you. Brother, you can't, anyone who does not, uh, one of my, the old commentary says, uh, kiss goodbye. Everything that he has cannot be my disciple. And I think that what he's saying, again, understand this in the mindset of Jesus, is he's saying, in fact, you won't be my disciple. In fact, you will walk away. In fact, you'll be torn to shreds if you don't renounce everything that you have. You won't make it once I'm gone unless your commitment is thorough. You have to be all in. Uh, well, his opponents, we need to remember, are religious folks. They are scrupulous uh, in their practice. Uh, they are conservative. They are the guardians of the status quo. Uh, they hate that Jesus is uh, making things different. They hate that their baseline understandings are being challenged and being upset. And we're going to see in a minute that they hate the fact that unsavory characters are following Jesus. And now, it would be natural for us who identify with Jesus and call him Lord uh, to take his side in the critique, in his critique of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, but we would miss the great opportunity that the Bible affords us uh, not to um, be complacent or smug or self-satisfied or pat ourselves on the back. Uh, but the opportunity that the Bible affords us is the opportunity to repent uh, and to believe the gospel. Those two things go hand in hand. Uh, repentance without faith 
is, is mean, meaningless posturing, and faith without repentance uh, is shallow and insubstantial. Uh, to the extent that you use the Bible to pat yourself on the back, you uh, unwittingly or not join the camp of Jesus' opponents. So I want to say to you and to me, uh, let's pay very close attention to this and let's be careful uh, as we read it. So I'm going to read uh, the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15 and I'm going to read them on the paper. Uh, now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Did you see that uh, movie, uh, The Jesus Revolution? Uh, it was really taken with the uh, the liturgy where the pastor would hold this up and say, this is the word of God. Uh, and everybody would respond to him, and we believe it's true. And that was the foundation of that revival in Calvary Chapel. Let's try it here. This is the word of God. Uh, let, let's do it one more time. I caught you by surprise. This is the word of God. Amen. So let's take a look at these passages. Uh, let's look at the verses. I'm going to, uh, someone asked me this morning how I was doing, and I said, I'm doing fine. I wish I could live my entire life uh, in the gospel of Luke. Uh, but here we are. Um, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Uh, that kind of is very plain spoken. It's what it is. But uh, we didn't read the last verse of the last chapter. Uh, to get the flavor of it. Um, Jesus said at the very end of, again, that rigorous teaching, unless, anyone, unless someone renounces all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And following right on that, Luke says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who is it that has the ears to hear? Uh, well, it seems as though it's the tax collectors and the sinners who have ears to hear, which is a little bit surprising. And, and this is the point, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, frankly, I mean, I think we could do uh, a sermon and a half just on the second verse, but I'm going to cut it short uh, and ask you just to pay pretty close attention to it. Um, 
In contrast to those who have the ears to hear, the Pharisees grumble. Uh, it's a strong word. Uh, the word in Greek is diagongudzo. To grumble is gongudzo. Isn't that a great word? Sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Gongudzo. Uh, but these guys are thoroughly grumbling. They are grumbling excessively. And they are saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now again, I've mentioned before, uh, it's always important when you're reading the Gospel of Luke and any of the New Testament uh, documents to know that uh, table fellowship is a very serious matter. Uh, to sit down with someone and have a dinner with them is uh, it's a big deal. It's important. Uh, to invite a man to eat a meal is an honor. Uh, to sit down with someone else you feel honored. It's an offer of peace and trust and brotherhood and forgiveness. Uh, it really is a, a bonding together uh, when you get together and share a meal. And, and actually, in the etiquette of the uh, ancient Near East, a, uh, a, a wealthy person, a, a person of prominence, a powerful person, uh, while he could feed the poor, he would never invite the poor in to eat with him. Uh, you just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't sit down at table. And so what they're grumbling about is that Jesus is sitting down at table. Now, you, you might be thinking about the Old Testament. Uh, grumbling is, is, an, is a natural sort of thing uh, for human beings to do. Uh, we grumble pretty readily, uh, but it was raised to an art form by the Israelites, if you remember their experience in the wilderness uh, having been brought out of uh, the, na the nation of Egypt uh, on their way to the promised land, uh, they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled. Uh, it really is almost amusing when you go back and read Exodus. Uh, at, at every point at which there's an obstacle, they start howling in indignation against Moses and Aaron and say, you've only brought us out here in the desert to kill us. And, they, and alarmingly, uh, they say more than once, uh, we wish we'd never left Egypt. In fact, we'd like to go back to Egypt. Um, I, do you know when you grumble? I'm asking that question in the questions for reflection. Are you aware of grumbling? Um, I, I can modify the word a little bit uh, to say, are you aware of ever being grumpy? Now, I, I actually have a Disney mug that has grumpy on it. And I have grumpy more than any of the other dwarves. I can't even remember their names. Uh, but grumpy somewhat marks me. Uh, I can be grumpy in a New York minute. I can, you, people that know me well might even say it's my default mode. If you have a new car, you might have driving modes. Have you seen these? Uh, new motorcycles have them too. You can put yourself in the economy mode or the sport mode or the regular mode. Uh, there ought to be a mode for grumpy. Uh, <laughs> the other day in our house, I mean, something kind of amusing uh, took place. We are renting this house that has one of these counters where you can stand on either side of it. And we were making a pizza, and uh, T had made some sauce, and I smoothed the sauce out onto the pizza, and I was smoothing it around, and I set the bowl over, and she picked up the bowl and noticed that there was plenty of sauce left in it. So she scooped it out and slapped it down on the pizza, which, of course, came up. <laughs> which would really be fun and a tender moment in a good marriage. 
But I was pretty grumpy about it. And I snapped and I had to apologize. And then I had to live with the regret of how I, I, I ruined a pretty good moment. Um, but we've got this capacity to grumble and it's nowhere more grievous than we are grumbling against what it is that God is doing. And the nub of the grumbling here is that Jesus is Jesus' willingness to share table fellowship with sinners, uh, which is equivalent to offering them salvation, uh, which is almost equivalent to say, here is salvation. And in fact, isn't that what Jesus does a few chapters later uh, when he yet speaks to Zacchaeus up in the tree? He says, come down quickly <clears throat> because I have to eat with you today. And, and again, it, it drove the Pharisees nuts because this guy was a tax collector. He was a sinner. He was a wretch. He was an enemy of their community. And, and the one uh, interesting thing here is the word receives, which you kind of are, are surprised to even see it there because re- receives indicates that Jesus, more than eating with sinners, is actually inviting them. And, uh, you know, there are scholars that have kind of dug into this a little bit, uh, but it does seem here as though the possibility exists that someone had said to Jesus, uh, I've got a room at my house and I would be glad to host dinners if you want to do the inviting. We know that you don't have a roof over your head, or probably not, but if you would like to host people, I'll open up my place for that. That's almost what this is inferring that Jesus is hosting the meal, and he's inviting uh, sinners, tax collectors, and scribes, uh, unsavory folks, uh, to come in and eat with him. So this is just something that bears some thought, some meditation later on in the day and later on in the week. Uh, In our world today, uh, grumbling Uh, as it was in the wilderness, has been raised to an art form. And, you know, actually, seriously, there is a performance art uh, that centers on grumbling, on dissatisfaction, and even outrage. And, And contemporary social discourse in our country has mainly to do with complaining. And it takes up residence and indignation. You know, the most popular TV show, I think, ever... Uh, invented a secular holiday uh, in which the primary activity was the airing of grievances. And, of course, you know, as that was written, it was amusing. And In fact, if I ever see a group of people uh, eating breakfast together, hanging out together, I'll ask them, you know, are, are we airing grievances? Is this what we're going to do? And, uh, and part of that's amusing, but part of that's pretty serious because it's easy to do that, isn't it? That you get together with some folks that were like-minded and you air grievances. Uh, We don't talk enough about ingratitude. But as I was uh, preparing this sermon this week and thinking about the grumbling, uh, I listened to a podcast where a couple of pastors (coughs) were actually reflecting on and uh, bouncing around Uh, the first few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, that's where uh, the Apostle Paul is warning uh, Timothy, saying things are about to get rough. And he says, uh, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, <clears throat> and then it goes on into the next verse. And they paused on ungrateful. And they said, let's think about that a little bit. Um, it's about as central a sin as one can imagine in the Bible to be ungrateful, to have your life marked by ingratitude. And that's what's going on when you're grumbling, that ingratitude has risen to a more central position than it ought to be. And so it's appropriate, I think, uh, heading into Thanksgiving. Isn't it great that you, you, we have a real holiday, not a made-up one, uh, that will give us pause and hopefully, not only will you give thanks this week, but you will take a, a bit of a moment to repent of ingratitude. And say, Lord, it's easy for me to be ungrateful. It is easy for me to grumble. You know, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, there's a whole bunch of nasty sins. He says, none of these things should be named among you. It's in chapter 5. He says, rather the giving of thanks. And you kind of have this idea that, that uh, gratitude exists as an antidote to a whole collection of sins. So that's a little bit too much time on the first two verses. We need to get to the parables, and let's do that. Uh, he tells them this parable. Uh, which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? Uh, I often want to mention that shepherds are not the, the, the wonderful um, um, men of nature uh, that you imagine them to be. At least that's not what they were in the ancient Near East. Uh, this was a disreputable profession. Uh, most of the shepherds were scoundrels a little bit. Uh, they, were, they were always kind of moving their sheep onto other people's land, you know, so that they could get them back. And so that's what makes it so wonderful when you read the Christmas story that there were shepherds to whom the angels appeared to let them know that Jesus had been born. Uh, but for Jesus to suggest to them, uh, which of you, uh, as a shepherd, having a hundred sheep, it might ruffle them a little bit. I, who are you calling a shepherd? How dare you compare me to the... To the you know, to that uh, rascally bunch of folks. Um, but that's what Jesus asked them to imagine. Uh, real shepherds were shunned uh, in the community at the time, even while they recited Psalm 23, uh, happily that the Lord was their shepherd. Uh, but real shepherds would shock the sensitivities of the listeners, and Jesus asked them to imagine uh, being a shepherd. So this one goes out uh, because one of his sheep is lost. <clears throat> he leaves the 99. He goes and finds it. And then in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Uh, this initial joy uh, is surprising. Now again, imagine yourself a shepherd. Imagine that one of your sheep has gone missing. What's your first instinct? My first instinct is to be uh, ticked off. Uh, my first instinct is to think about the time I'm about to waste. You know, a great parallel to this would be, uh, do you ever have something go wrong technologically in your house and have to call customer service? You know, something has gone wrong with the computer and you've got to call Apple or Microsoft or somebody. 
or something's gone wrong with the printer and you have to wait on hold indefinitely with Hewlett Packard. Uh, I get aggravated with that, I get surly with that, I get impatient with it. Well, what happens when you lose a sheep? Uh, he finds the sheep, <clears throat> but as I understand it, Shepherd's writing about this, a lost sheep uh, won't jump with joy and say, aha, the shepherd has found me, uh, lead on, I'll follow you back to home. Uh, in fact, uh, the lost sheep has laid down in despair, is nearly paralyzed, and when found, it needs to be carried back on the shoulders of the shepherd. And, you, and we've got this great art. I haven't taken a look at the one out here. Alex told me there is one uh, here in the foyer. But often what you see in Christian bookstores is a picture of Jesus with a lamb on his shoulder. Uh, this is not a lamb, the full-grown sheep. Now, again, what would your disposition be on finding the sheep? Uh, my disposition would be uh, to be, well, I've already mentioned it. I'd be pretty grumpy about it. Uh, but the shepherd rejoices. He rejoices that he's found the sheep, takes it home. Even though it's a lot of work to lug the sheep home, he rejoices and he is glad for the burden. And then that private joy becomes communal. When he comes home in verse 6, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, of course, the community is going to rejoice, uh, not only in the return of the sheep, but also the return of the shepherd, because he may have been on a, a hazardous endeavor to find the lost sheep. Uh, it's possible that the flock is part of a communal flock, so there's some happiness in that. But the point that Jesus is saying is that this private joy becomes communal joy, and that is reflective of what's going on in heaven. Now, this is very interesting when you take a look at it. Just so I tell you, and I think it's good to remember uh, what John said in chapter 3 of his gospel. He said that Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus has been in heaven. He knows what it's like. And so he's giving you an eyewitness account of what takes place in heaven. Just so, I tell you, in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Of course, there's a little bit of a twist there, isn't it? I mean, there's no such thing as no one who doesn't need repentance. But he's dealing with people who think they don't need repentance. Or they might say, theoretically, I guess I need repentance. But if you were to ask them, when was the last time you repented, there'd be some head scratching. Not sure when that happened last. And this is an important thing to grasp and to understand. Uh, you know, we often have this notion of repentance as being that thing that accompanies faith as a means of entrance into the community, as a means of entrance into the kingdom of God. So how does a person become a Christian? Uh, that person repents and believes the gospel. I mean, that's what Jesus said, repent, believe the good news. Uh, Peter said the same thing when uh, the people were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? In light of this uh, sermon, in light of the fact that <clears throat> Jesus has been crucified and it's somewhat laid to our account, uh, he says, well, you ought to repent and you ought to believe. So we understand that. Um, the uh, officers are being trained 
this afternoon, and we're going to talk about uh, this theological construct of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And the way that that's imagined by the theologians is that God uh, convicts you of your sin, uh, He regenerates your heart, and out of that regeneration you repent and believe, you are converted, and you're justified, and you're on your way to sanctification and glorification. Well, the way that thing is constructed is that repentance and faith provide entrance into the kingdom. But that would be a big mistake, because that's not only where it is. Repentance and faith precede conversion. Uh, They also are part of the warp and the woof of sanctification. And so listen to what Jesus is saying here. Every time a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. I've suggested on occasion that in the unlikely event that any one of you would actually repent, you ought to hold a party. And, And you ought to invite your friends over and say, I'm as surprised about this as you are. Uh, But the Lord is at work, and there is joy in heaven. Now, what's interesting to me is that it doesn't look like the sheep is repenting, does it? Uh, The sheep is found, again, ostensibly paralyzed, lying in a ditch. And and the shepherd grabs the sheep, throws it on his shoulders, and takes it back. Nonetheless, that's being described as a sinner repenting and the joy taking place in heaven. Um, And so I think it's important in this simple parable, uh, which accords with many others that we see very clearly, and I know I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I think I'm on target, um, that salvation is by grace and not by works. Again, it's not the sheep jumping up and happily following the shepherd back home, but it's the sheep being picked up and slung on the shoulders. And so we want to be very clear that justification is by God and his grace. The shepherd finds the sheep. And God's grace comes to people who believe. And justification comes to those uh, through their faith and not through works. And again, I mean, we're living in a society in which works loom very large. You know, the world says you can only be justified by the things that you do. You can only be justified by embracing a social or a political agenda. You can only be justified by coming over to our side, by doing the work. Otherwise, you should be ashamed of yourself. And it is interesting, as I've gone in and often preached passages like this and tried to say to evangelical and conservative Christians, you're just like the Pharisees. Uh, I find today that you could also say the same thing about those who are passionate about social justice, the demand for good works and the demand that justification follow good works. Well, the Bible is very clear that while good works are critical, they follow faith and they are a part of the redemption that God grants to those who are justified by faith. So this is good news for all of us. Because while you are being called to repent, uh, you're being called to repent by a shepherd who puts the sheep on his shoulders and takes him home. And so there's an active repentance, but there's also a passive 
Lord, I recognize this. I know that I need it. Uh, Please come and save me. So the second parable is shorter and simpler, the parable of the lost coin. Uh, It says the same point. Uh, Luke often, I've mentioned before, parallels a man and a woman. So the male shepherd, and here is the woman in her home. Uh, And if using the shepherd was bracing uh, to his hearers, using a woman is even more so. Uh, He's asking them to imagine being a woman uh, who has to sweep her house clean in order uh, to find this coin that was worth a day's wage. And again, the point is, just so, he says in verse 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, you know, John Piper wrote a, a, a book with an arresting title, at least it caught my attention many years ago, uh, called The Pleasures of God. And, uh, and I was interested, I grabbed it and devoured it. And it was a, an interesting concept to me, an interesting idea that I hadn't thought of before. And Piper does such a glorious job expounding it. But it's on the topic of the question, what makes God happy? Uh, do you imagine that God is ever happy? Do you imagine God taking pleasure, enjoying something? A lot of times our view of God is quite distant. And even our view of Jesus might be quite distant. But Jesus is saying very clearly here that in heaven there is joy. Among the angels, there is certainly joy in the heart of Jesus. I mean, there's that place uh, where it says when he is full of joy in the Holy Spirit, he prays and says, I thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things not to the wise and learned, but rather to little children. Now, that's a great picture, isn't it? Jesus full of joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, what makes the Father happy is your repentance. You know, not that he's happy with your, the misery of your repentance, the sorrow of it. Uh, the sorrow of your repentance ought to be short. It ought to be abbreviated. Uh, but he delights that what was lost is now found. And in that way, he's like us. Uh, you know what it's like to lose something and then find it. And how much fun that is. <clears throat> Sometimes you're a little bit desperate to find car keys so you can get somewhere. We lost one of those little magnetic clips that's on the top of a Yeti mug, you know, that little thing. Popped off, we take them off when we wash it, and it was long gone, couldn't find it. T found it the other day, underneath the recliner. Found this little stupid magnetic clip. But when you find something that was lost, you rejoice, and you take delight. But what about finding something even more valuable? My dad gave me a pair of cufflinks that were a gift to his dad from the governor of New Jersey uh, because uh, my grandfather apparently, long before I was thought of, had uh, put up the first x-ray machine uh, in the state of New Jersey. My son has lost those cufflinks. Uh, They'll come back. (laughs) They'll be found someday. It's not like he lost them while he was out on the town. He lost them in his house. It'll be a day of rejoicing when those are found uh, because they're a little bit better than finding the magnetic clip of a Yeti mug. <laughs> but what about finding a brother or a sister who was lost? What would that be like? For some of us, <clears throat> I could say, what about finding a son or a daughter who was lost? What would that be like? 
And, and we're getting kind of to the heart of the passage. <clears throat> the next parable, which will be gotten to next week, is about a brother uh, who was lost. And if you can imagine, the Pharisees have around them brothers and sisters who are being found, and their response is to grumble thoroughly. They're so unhappy about it. How perverse could that be? And yet, if you know your own heart, you know how easily you could fall into that. And so, you know, the great invitation here uh, is to repent. You could do that now. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. That's the invitation. Um, I think it's interesting that we use the story often to talk about conversion. You know, that if you ask somebody to imagine the story, they'd say, oh, well, there's great joy in heaven every time a sinner is converted. Except that's not what it says. It says every time a sinner repents, there's joy in heaven. That's hard to imagine. It's hard to get your brain around it. Again, I think it's just setting us up for the more profound parable that follows. Uh, but it's good enough now as we come to this table. You know, this table is a table of repentance. It's a table of salvation. This is what we Presbyterians do rather than altar calls. Uh, if you're hungry and thirsty, you need to come. Now, we're not coming. It's going to be distributed to you. But imagine yourself to be coming. Uh, if you're hungry and thirsty, if you want what is on offer uh, in the gospel. And, uh, and, and I'll say it here in a minute in a more direct way, uh, but this is a table for believers. It's not a table for unbelievers. If you don't believe, uh, we, want, we want politely and respectfully to ask you not to participate. Uh, but I would love to talk to you or any of the other pastors or elders would love to talk to you about that. Uh, but we also talk about, on occasion, that you should not come if you have some unconfessed sin in your life. And, and I, I talked to the other pastors about this the other day, and I think it's a, it's a live question. It is certainly true that if you're absolutely hard-hearted and, uh, and angry and possessed, you should be careful about this. Uh, but it is also the case that you don't have the right to excommunicate yourself. And I want to say that if you are struggling, if you are troubled, if there are things in your life that you wish were different, come to this table. Go talk to your shepherding elder. Go talk to one of the pastors surely, quickly. Uh, don't, don't let that rest for very long. But come to where the nourishment uh, is found. Come to where uh, we have on good evidence uh, there will be rejoicing in heaven. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, it is uh, almost impossible for us to comprehend uh, the height, depth, breadth, and width of the love of Christ. And, and we know that there are uh, heretics who uh, end up, rather than being uncomfortable, interpreting the Bible so as to say everybody's saved, but that really won't wash uh, with what is in the Bible and with, uh, with what is in the heart of Jesus. Uh, and so we tend to kind of go in the other direction and reduce this thing and pinch it down 
to where we're nervous about the glorious expansion uh, of your grace uh, into the hearts of people that we would find uh, uh, disreputable, if not just like us. And so we pray, Father, will you please have mercy on us? We want very much to leave this room today knowing the joy of salvation. We want very much to leave the room today uh, a little bit more confident that you really do love us and, uh, and that you really did send Jesus for folks who are in need and not for those who are cleaned up. Uh, so please come give us the spirit and do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.